Welcome to Talk Iran. This is Salman Askeri. Today on the podcast, Trita Parsi. An award-winning author and the 2010 recipient of the Grawmeyer Award for Ideas Improving World Order, Trita Parsi is also the founder and the former president of the National Iranian American Council, arguably the most influential Iranian American organization within the American political framework. Trita completed his PhD under Professor Francis Fukuyama at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and is an expert on U.S.-Iran relations, Iranian foreign politics, and the geopolitics of the Middle East. He's the author of the 2008 book, Treacherous Alliance, The Secret Dealings of Iran, Israel, and the United States. The book was the silver medal winner of the 2008 Arthur Ross Book Award from the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also written two other books, A Single Roll of the Dice, which was released in early 2012, and the 2017 Losing an Enemy, which reveals the -the behind-the-scenes story of the historic Iran nuclear deal. Trita is a vocal proponent of dialogue and engagement between the U.S. and Iran which he has consistently argued would enhance U.S. national security by helping to stabilize the Middle East and to bolster the moderates in the Islamic Republic. As such, he and his organization greatly supported the Iran nuclear deal and are somewhat controversial amongst those in the Iranian diaspora who are regime change advocates. Trita has also worked for the Swedish permanent mission to the UN, where he served in the Security Council handling the affairs of Afghanistan, Iraq, Tajikistan, and Western Sahara and in the General Assembly's Third Committee Addressing Human Rights in Iran, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and Iraq. His other roles include having been an adjunct professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University, George Washington University, and Georgetown University, as well as an adjunct scholar at the Middle East Institute and a policy fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. He's written numerous articles on Middle East affairs and major publications, and is also a frequent guest on many television news networks. Trita and I discuss his founding of the National Iranian American Council, also known as NIAC or NIAC, his and NIAC's involvement in the activities leading up to the signing of the Iran nuclear deal, the various pitfalls of the deal and Trump's withdrawal, whether the only alternative to diplomacy is war, the current challenges facing Iranian society and the growing discontent in that country, his thoughts on the Iranian reform movement, Reza Pahlavi, the geopolitics of the Middle East, and potential future scenarios for Iran and the region. And finally, why he recently left Nayak as its president and what lies ahead for him. So without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with Trita Parsi. Let's start with why you founded the National Iranian American Council, or NIAC, in 2002. What was the thought process behind establishing the organization, and what was its main purpose and its founding principles? So back in 2000, actually, the conversations to start it, uh, start NIAC started right after 9-11. 9-11 was actually one trigger point for this, because it was an example of Um, one of these stereotypes of our community that actually our community itself holds uh, being shattered. And that's the fact that, oh, uh, Iranian Americans, the reason why we don't have a political voice is because we're not united. Mm -hmm. Well, the unity against the terrorist acts against the United States was overwhelming. 
Also, there was a tremendous amount of unity against the first pieces of legislation that came after that, which dramatically reduced the number of visas given to Iranians while not touching Saudi Arabia, UAE, or, or Egypt. It was a uh, border um, enhanced border protection act of 2002. Mm -hmm. So we saw clearly that actually, no, there is unity in our community, but we still don't have a capacity of expressing our views collectively. And why is that? And we start digging a little bit deeper and we saw that the real problem is not unity. In fact, our community is by and large more united than most other communities you would think are very influential in the United States and you would think they're united, but they're actually not. They're just better organized. Mm. And we looked at it and we saw that our community, we can't be organized because we're not participating in the political process. Our civic education was very low. Our civic participation was very low. So we didn't even know how to express our agreement, forget about expressing our disagreements. So we decided to put together an organization that would first focus on enhancing the civic education levels in our community, uh, help them get involved in the politics of this country, contribute to the democracy. Uh, and in the beginning, our position was that we're not going to take a position. We're just going to help people express whatever views they have. We're just going to help them instead of arguing with their TVs, actually express those views within the political system in a way that actually could have an impact. Yeah, obviously you've done a lot to raise the concerns of the Iranian-American community within the framework, the political framework of the United States. If we can fast forward from the founding of NIAC all the way to uh, when the negotiations started for the uh, Iran nuclear deal, in your most recent book, Losing an Enemy, in which you outlined the details of how the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA was struck, you talk about your involvement and interactions with various key figures on both the American and the Iranian sides. For those who haven't read the book, can you talk about your personal involvement as well as NIAC's involvement in facilitating um, the deal? Well, we, we didn't facilitate it, nor did we obviously negotiate it. Uh, we were asked to support the Obama administration, so we were advising them throughout the talks. Mm -hmm. But I think the most important um, I would say there's three things that we did that were quite important for the negotiations. First of all, for years, when it was quite unpopular, when we were in complete minority position, mm -hmm. we kept on uh, consistently arguing that there is a diplomatic solution to this crisis and that we don't need to go down the path of war. And that even if we go down the path of sanctions, it's very dangerous because sanctions more often than not lead to further escalation rather than a de-escalation towards diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, we prepared intellectual ground together with a few other organizations for the path that the president eventually chose to go. Once he went down this path, of course, we were one of the few organizations that has spent time thinking about how would a solution look like and what are the things the Iranians are concerned about, where are where are the areas in which they might be flexible? Where are the areas in which, you know, we're probably better off realizing that we already reached the red lines? Everything in order to be able to get a fair, equitable solution to this that would be valuable to all sides. Yeah. And then, of course, the third element is after the deal was struck. In some ways, the president's job got even harder because after having negotiated with seven countries, he had to go down to Congress and negotiate with 535 members of Congress, many of whom believe they themselves are secretaries of states. 
So uh, there are effort together with groups such as J Street and Friends Committee on National um, Legislation, Move On and others. We helped uh, significantly in order to make sure that Congress would not kill the deal. As you know, the deal has had a lot of detractors, not only within the hardline communities on, uh, on either side. You're familiar with the rhetoric coming out of the hardline camp in the Islamic Republic. There are also many Republicans that kind of echo those same sentiments, but on the American side. And Iranian Americans themselves have sort of been divided on the issue as well. They felt like the Iran nuclear deal may not have gone far enough in terms of human rights and all of that. Do you think NIAC fully represented the full scope of how Iranian Americans felt about the deal? Uh, yes, I absolutely do, because at the end of the day, when it came to a point of deciding whether to support the deal or not, uh, more than, I think one poll showed 70% of our community supported the deal. So did we represent the 30%? No, we represented the majority view. When it came to the issue of human rights, uh, that was a decision that those countries themselves took, and the U.S. was very much in favor of that, unfortunately to limit the, the agenda to only the nuclear issue. And there's several reasons as to why they decided that, and I explain that in the book as well. Mm-hmm. We did argue consistently that there needs to be a human rights component to this as well. We also argue that there needs to be a regional uh, political dimension. That component actually did exist, but it was not in the P5 plus one setting. It was in the bilateral setting between the United States and Iran that came about as a result of the P5 plus one negotiations. Had there not been a nuclear negotiation, there would also not have been a bilateral channel between the United States and Iran in which actually human rights was raised. Uh, And many of those issues include some of the Iranians that were imprisoned, uh, Iranian-Americans that were imprisoned in Iran at the time. And those who followed this closely also saw that um, there was a promise there. Uh, Part of the reason my book is called Losing an Enemy and Not Lost an Enemy is because there's a process. It's not completed. Striking this deal didn't mean that the United States lost Iran as uh, an enemy. It meant that it had embarked on a process in which it could lose Iran as an enemy. But that necessitated investing in it, nurturing it, building upon it. Instead, what we have seen is that Donald Trump did everything he could from the very moment he stepped into the Oval Office was to suffocate it. And eventually he has been more or less successful. So imagine if that process actually had gone forward. I think we would see a very different situation today. First of all, the economic situation in Iran would be much better than it is right now mm-hmm. if the deal actually had been properly implemented. And by the way, some of the improper implementation of the nuclear deal started even under Obama. It was yeah. not something that just started with Trump. Uh, and I think we also would have been able to move towards a situation in which uh, human rights could have been addressed much more effectively. What I think we all have to remember is that in the absence of any dialogue, any diplomacy, how are you going to address human rights? During those 40 or so years when the U.S. and Iran did not talk to each other, how did that advance human rights in Iran? So many people argue that even if Donald Trump were to not uh, withdraw the U.S. from the deal, that if he kind of let things ride themselves out, that because of the rampant corruption and cronyism 
And the fact that the business environment in Iran is so convoluted with the interests of the IRGC and other actors, that the Iran nuclear deal was going to fail on its own. What do you say to that? Uh, no, I don't believe it would have failed on its own as a result of just those factors. I think if you add a couple of more factors to it, there was a risk that it would have collapsed on its own. But I'm going to make one small correction. It's not as if the deal started falling apart when Trump decided to pull out of it. From the moment he came in, he started talking about, I'm going to pull out of it. Hmm. By doing that, he sent signals to businesses, get out of Iran. Right. A lot of businesses had been waiting to see who would win the presidency before they went into Iran. Then they waited to see, okay, is Trump going to recertify the deal, which he did? And they were constantly trying to make a decision. He did everything he could to infuse uncertainty into the situation. This deliberate, will I kill it? Will I not kill it? What does that do? It makes the situation unclear. What do businesses want? They want clarity. They don't want to have to worry about the political stuff. They just want to know, okay, I'm going to do business and this is how the environment is going to be. Yeah. Deliberately, he was undermining and making sure that a lot of folks that probably could have gone in didn't go in. Then you have the other aspects that you mentioned, the fact that Iran has so much corruption, so much mismanagement, so much uh, incompetence. Many of those things, frankly, are inherent to this regime because of how it came about. Many of it is actually also a result of sanctions. Every example of a sanctions economy you see, whether you take a look at North Korea, Cuba, Zimbabwe, etc., sanctioned economies also develop underground economies as a way of getting around sanctions. And those underground economies are by nature highly corrupt. Mm -hmm. So all of these things come together. But the one thing I would add that I think likely could have led to this deal collapsing, even if Trump had not been elected, is that in some ways this deal increased the contradiction in U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Because on the one hand, this is one big mistake that I thought the Obama administration did. After striking the deal, there was an opportunity to be able to have a new relationship with Saudi Arabia, one that would be much, much more conditional. No more giving the Saudis a pass for everything they wanted to do. Similarly, doing so with uh, Israel giving them a little bit more tough love. Instead, the Obama administration went in the opposite direction. They felt that because they had struck a deal with Iran, they had to now compensate. This was the word that they used, Saudi Arabia and Israel, by now being even more deferential to them, which meant being even more supportive of this ridiculous war in Yemen, etc., etc. So there was already a tremendous amount of contradiction in U.S. foreign policy in the region. This increased it because of the follow-up, even under Obama, in my view, was incorrect. And that contradiction could have reached a point, even absent Trump, in which the deals could, could have collapsed. Let's talk about the, the dichotomy that's sort of been a central theme in a lot of your writings, which is the dichotomy between diplomacy and war. A lot of people argue that the current administration doesn't have an appetite for an Iraq-style war or invasion of Iran. The American public certainly doesn't have the appetite for it. So to say that the only alternative to striking a deal is war, which has sort of been the, the talking points coming out of NIAC, for example, is false. 
and that there are other alternatives, for example, pressuring the regime to the point where it almost has some sort of a transformation that's not necessarily regime change, but it's a considerable transformation within the system. That's, these other alternatives also exist that are not necessarily conflict-driven. Uh, what is your response to that? Let me, let me put it this way. Um, a premise of the question is that war only happens when countries and leaders deliberately choose to start them. History, however, is filled with plenty of examples that shows actually that wars very often start not because of a desire, but because of miscalculation, because of mistakes, uh, because of misunderstandings and misreadings of situations. The reason why not only NIAC, but a very large number of analysts describe the situation between the United States and Iran over these years as a uh, a situation that essentially had to be resolved diplomatically or some form of a confrontation was precisely because of the fact that um, the situation had reached a point in which the space for no war, no peace had run out because the Iranians were getting so far ahead with their nuclear program. The United States was under so much pressure from Israel to take military action. And, and as a result of it, there wasn't any options left uh, between either resolving it diplomatically or trying to resolve it through confrontation. Uh, and this ended up also being, incidentally, the analysis of the Obama administration itself. Mm -hmm. Very clearly um, uh, reached that point in January 2013, realizing, look, th th there, is, there is no such option of thinking that this will just get resolved by itself. For this to work, ultimately, uh, there needed to be some form of um, uh, diplomatic solution or the United States would either have to choose to accept Iran becoming a nuclear power or simply um, uh, go to war. Um, so I, I don't think that, that, to be completely frank with you, I don't think that view is particularly strongly contested. Uh, we have plenty of folks and uh, incidentally plenty of reports coming out of Israel showing how many times, at least four times, that the Israelis were very, very close to taking military action against Iran. Uh, so it wasn't uh, uh, either a hyperbole or miscalculation in which people were saying, look, this you either resolve this diplomatically or war will break out. And war breaking out doesn't necessarily mean that the United States would cause it. It could mean that Israel would initiate it with the aim of forcing the United States into the war. As to the other options, as you are uh, putting forward, that there would be some sort of a pressure forcing the Iranians into some form of a transformation, um, I'll be frank with you. Those are the type of arguments I hear from some elements uh, in the opposition groups in exile Mm -hmm. uh, I've seen no historical examples that are compatible that would show that this is a, a realistic option. Uh, secondly, I've seen no one in D.C. taking those things seriously, uh, I assume for similar reasons. Uh, and moreover, uh, the time frame for such pressures um, uh, may not be compatible with the time frame 
the timeline that existed for the Obama administration, mindful of the fact that by January 2013, Iran's breakout capability had reached as little as eight weeks. There was at a point in which the United States started to fear that the breakout point started to become so small that even military action no longer would be an option. Um, so I, I do know that there's some folks in opposition who make those arguments. Uh, I've not seen any serious analysts take those arguments particularly seriously. And I think a main reason for that is precisely because uh, there's very little, if any, historical examples that have compatibility with the situation in Iran uh, that makes those viable. Incidentally, also keep one thing in mind. The coalition of sanctions that the president put together uh, was very much premised on the idea we need the sanctions in order to be able to have leverage in a negotiation with Iran. That's very different from being able to go and say to Germany, go say to South Korea, hey, we're going to do uh, sanctions on Iran until we force a transformation inside of Iranian society. Very few countries would sign up for such a proposition. When we look at Iranian society today, if we look at what's happening on the ground in Iran, you mentioned the economic challenges that that society is facing right now. Uh, we also talked about the rampant corruptions, there are human rights violations. Obviously, we can go through examples of those. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with those. There have been protests recently. A lot of these protests are sort of different in nature than past protests in the sense that people have uh, used anti-Islamic uh, Republic chants uh, when they're out on the streets. A lot of these people that are protesting now are not necessarily the elites of North Tehran, but they're also folks in um, other smaller cities and so on. So there's there's obviously growing discontent amongst the population in Iran, and a lot of it is directed at the, the system itself, the core of, of the Islamic Republic. So a, a lot of these rumblings that you say come from the opposition groups around, you know, a big, big transformation happening in Iran, I feel like are not just from the opposition groups. There are certain activities happening on the ground in Iran that sort of align with those rumblings. What are your thoughts on that? Is And what are what is the path forward to sort of alleviate some of these real concerns and grievances that people have that are out on the streets? So, uh, Salman, I think you're confusing two issues here. Okay. Um, on the one hand, we can have a conversation about what's happening in Iran and what would be good, et cetera, what people want now. Uh -huh. That's different from the conversation that existed four years ago when we were uh, working to get the nuclear deal. Uh -huh. You did not have those things. If anything, you had 78% of the population electing Rouhani uh, and people dancing on the streets when the nuclear deal was struck. Right. Uh, so very different scenario from today when, of course, there are protests and people are very disappointed in the nuclear deal. It has not delivered in their view. I think they're right on that issue. They're also very uh, disappointed with the economic performance. They're very disappointed in the uh, corruption, mismanagement, uh, and all of those other things that in many ways have gotten very, very bad, if not even worse than it was before. Mm -hmm. But also you, you have to be careful to recognize that the United States – Europe, Russia, China, they're not charities. They were not involved in any of these things because they have dreams of democracy in Iran. That's not their concern. 
Their concern was that there would be a military confrontation over Iran's nuclear issue. The Russians and the Chinese were terrified that this would lead to a, a regional-wide war that would be very destabilizing for them. The Europeans were terrified about the refugee flows that would come. Um, uh, the United States was very worried about it because it knew that war with Iran would be very difficult. And the last thing the president of the United States at that time wanted was another potentially unending war in the Middle East. The two previous ones had been costly and devastating enough. So from their perspective, they're not in the business uh, of looking at some of these other factors. And at the time, the signals from Iranian society, civil society, etc., was please pursue diplomacy, please strike a deal. Uh, this is what the people of Iran want. And we saw clear evidence of that once the deal was struck. Today, it's a very different scenario. It's a very different situation uh, because the, the disappointment that the deal has not delivered, the disappointment that the Rouhani government has proven itself to be just as corrupt as previous uh, and incompetent as previous uh, governments have been. And now you're also sensing a tremendous amount of frustration amongst a new generation of uh, people who uh, were still children when the nuclear deal was being struck, who are out there protesting because they have a sense of no hope, because they don't see how their future in that country under these circumstances are going to be uh, able to be met. So um, those are very different situations. And today, when we look at the situation, uh, we have to approach it from the perspective of first trying to understand exactly what is taking place in Iran. And the reason why I say this is because we're also in an era in which there is a tremendous amount of misinformation and propaganda that is being spread by those who are seeking to destabilize Iran, not because they want uh, a democracy in Iran, but because they want to turn Iran into Syria. Um, and also there's a lot of misinformation and propaganda coming from the government itself. There's also exaggerations coming from folks who are hoping uh, that they will be able to get funding uh, because uh, the instability in Iran right now, or they want to present themselves as having played a key role in it. My own sense, talking to folks on the ground in Iran, is that there is a tremendous amount of uh, anger. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of um, uh, hopelessness. Uh, what is happening to the uh, currency is devastating everyone. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of fatigue with the idea that all of these problems are because of the United States. It's very clear that while sanctions definitely have played an important role in all of this, so much of this is being caused by wrong policies and corruption by the government itself. I mean, when you have banks that are promising, guaranteeing 20% interest, yeah. completely unregulated, without a doubt, sanctions or no sanctions, at some point, the currency would collapse as a result of this. Yeah. And you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. You just have to pick up a, a Wall Street Journal and read what happened in Cyprus, read what happened in Iceland, read what happened in many other countries just years ago. Yeah. So you can't blame that on sanctions, clearly. That th those are things that are coming from inside as well. But what I think is at the same time fascinating is that you clearly have a segment of society that has lost hope in the idea that there can be change from within, that have lost hope in the idea that the system can reform itself and become better, yeah. uh, and, and that that path ultimately can lead to what you want. Um, and they have been out there protesting. Those protests are very widespread but they're not even a fraction of the size of the protests we saw 2009. 
we have to be careful also not to see see those existing protests that are you know, sizable nevertheless, but to think that, okay, that represents everyone. I've been talking to people who are very much part of the green movement, ask them why they're not going out and protesting. And they're like, well, we don't know who's behind these protests. We don't know what the organization is. We don't know what the leadership is. And what we don't want is to make a bad situation worse by going out there and just being angry, but not having a plan and then end up in a Syria type situation. Yeah. So if we look at the situation on the ground in a vacuum, I know that's not necessarily wise to do. But if we, uh, you know, just like you mentioned, there are uh, people that are uh, disgruntled, that are sort of, you know, disillusioned with the reform movement. What are your thoughts around whether reform is even possible? Because if you look at the constitution of the Islamic Republic and the concept of the Velayat al-Fahri, Many argue that at the end of the day, you're going to hit roadblocks within the system and that reform has been tried from the beginnings of of the Islamic Republic. And you've had many uh, reformists that were in power and that at this point, it, it seems like every single time that reform has been tried, they've sort of hit a wall. So what are your personal thoughts on the reform movement in Iran? I think people have been supporting reform, not because they thought that, oh, my God, what an amazingly attractive, effective and fast path towards a a more representative democracy. I think people have been supporting or opting for that precisely because it's the lowest risk approach, Mm -hmm. because they have lived through a revolution in which people didn't take the low risk path. They actually opted for a revolution that at times was very violent. Uh, and what did they get? They got went from one bad regime to, in many ways, a worse regime. Mm-hmm. Having lived through that, and this is still in the memory of a lot of people, this is not just something people read about in the books, and then lived through the horrible phases that a revolution goes through with very radical uh, policies uh, which only over time have become less radical. Um, I, I, I find it quite unsurprising that people have been opting for the reform path despite its many flaws, despite its lack of speed, despite its tendency of going two steps forwards and then two steps back, if you're lucky, one step back. Precisely because what is the alternatives? Um, until someone is capable of presenting an alternative, that answers the very valid concern of people that we don't want to become Syria. We don't want to become Iran of 1979. We don't want to become Libya. Until then, I think you're gonna continue to see young people because these protests have been overwhelmingly the ages of 19 to 23 males. You're gonna see them out there protesting because they have lost hope. Mm -hmm. But you're not gonna see the type of mass movement that you saw Uh, In 2009, in which you had people all ages, you had people both in the cities and smaller towns, uh, different demographics, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the focus on reform uh, sometimes is misplaced in the sense of people thinking that it's the actual desired path. I think it's the path people have opted for because no one else has managed to present a better alternative that not only can achieve your objective, but really minimizes the risk so you don't go from one bad situation to an even worse one, mindful of the fact that that's exactly what the people of Iran went through in 1979. 
Yeah, I agree that the alternatives are limited, but you do have groups such as the MEK, which I agree is a completely wacky group. It's cultish. But then you have, you know, Reza Pahlavi that has certain ideas and certain messages that to some extent resonate with, with people in Iran and outside of Iran in terms of giving them complete political freedom, letting them choose their own futures. Is that a pipe dream of many that Reza Pahlavi's message at some point could deliver and become something real? I, I, uh, so I have to say one thing here. I speak only for myself. As you know, I'm no longer the president of NIAC. Yeah. Uh, I stepped down uh, end of July. So I will only provide you my own personal perspective on this. Sure. I don't think Reza Pahlavi's problem in any way, shape or form is his message. His message is completely tailored to what is modern today and what people both in Iran and in the West will find very attractive and frankly, no brainer. Of course, you want to have freedom. Of course, you want to have these different things. The problem is not the message. It's the messenger. What are the credibilities? What is the resume, the CV of Reza Pahlavi, who's been living in exile for 40 years? What has he achieved? What has he done during this period to make people think of him as someone that can lead this? Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone has any beef with what he's saying because he's saying what the overwhelming majority of people agree with. In fact, if you listen to the propaganda of MEK, they also pretend to agree with those things. They also say, oh, we want to have a free Iran, etc." That's not difficult to say. What's difficult is to convince people that you actually have the capacity to be able to uh, organize people inside and the outside and bring about change. That's where the problem is, not just for Reza Pahlavi, but for almost everyone else on the outside. That's why people have tended to listen more to others inside who are positioning themselves in opposition, because at least they're inside and they have more of a knowledge of what's going on in the country. They have a network, they have capacity to a certain extent to organize, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, and I want to emphasize, it's not a direct criticism against Reza Pahlavi or, uh, or anyone else. It's, it's, it's just that it's very, very difficult for any individual to adopt leadership when you've been away from the country for 40 years, when you don't have those networks, when you don't have that sense of presence inside the country. Got it. So you've always tried to present the big picture in your work in terms of the geopolitical and ideological dynamics of the region, especially when it comes down to the relationships amongst um, the U.S., Israel, Iran, and the Arab states. Given your your knowledge in the area, how do you see these relationships unfolding, given that we're sort of going through a tumultuous period right now? What are some of the different paths? I know it's hard to predict the future, but what are some scenarios that could potentially unfold, um, let's say, within the next year or two? Um, Well, I think what you said, I think, earlier on, I I appreciate it because I think In order to be able to have any chance of predicting it, we first have to have an understanding of why did those things that happen happen? Right. Why is what is happening now happening? Once we understand the mechanics of that, what the driving forces are, that's when I think you have a chance of being able to predict it. And my analysis is a geopolitical analysis. 
I look at what happened between Iran and Israel in the 1970s and 60s and also 80s. And a lot of people would say, well, of course, the Shah was secular. That's why he could collaborate with Israel. Well, actually, the Iranian regime, a fundamentalist anti-Zionist regime, collaborated with Israel quite extensively in the 1980s as well. It was an ideology that was the driving force of this. It was geopolitics. They needed each other. And from the Israeli perspective, they were very disappointed that the Iranians were not willing to go even further. That all changes in the 1990s when the geopolitical interests of the two countries change as a result of the defeat of Saddam Hussein and then the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. At a time when the Iranian regime actually was less ideological, the enmity with Israel and the Israeli enmity with Iran started skyrocketing, completely contradicting the idea that ideology is the driving force of this. What we're seeing now is a continuation of this. As a result of Iran gaining influence, as a result of the Arab center of the Middle East collapsing, as a result of the United States no longer being an effective hegemon over the region because of its disastrous invasion of Iraq in 2003, you have now an orderless Middle East. There is no political or geopolitical order. There is no hegemon that can establish the order. There is no combination of states that have the capacity of playing that role. So instead, you have an intense competition between the leading states of the region to see who has the power to out-arm, out-compete the others, and establish an order that is beneficial to itself. And in that, the Saudis, the UAE, and the Israelis are now seeing a common interest because they want the United States to come back into the region and balance Iran. They themselves do not have the capacity to do so. So, and they're kind of lucky because had it not been Trump that was elected, their shot at convincing the US to go back into the region would probably have been minimal. With Trump, uh, they may actually succeed. Um, And again, it's not because Wahhabi Saudi Arabia suddenly is seeing eye to eye with Likudnik Zionists. It's because of geopolitical circumstances and forces that are now pushing them together. What will all of this lead to? Well, if we look at historically other regions similar to the Middle East, when you have tensions of this kind combined and rooted in an absence of a geopolitical order, you usually resolve those things through two ways. You either have an Uh, 1815 Congress of Vienna, as they had in Europe, and they established a balance of power that lasted roughly 70 years, or you end up in uh, um, recurring wars in the region, uh, which is what you saw in Europe in the 1900s when the previous balance of power collapsed and there was no effort to be able to establish a new one diplomatically. So I don't have a particularly positive view of what the future of, uh, of the Middle East will look like. Uh, I think, and I wrote a piece about it right after the nuclear deal, saying that despite the nuclear deal, you're going to see a very dark period uh, in the Middle East going forward, precisely because too little is being done to resolve this more macro-structural problem in the region. Yeah, it sounds like we are going through sensitive times, though, where we can potentially make an impact uh, in terms of having the Iranian people's voices be heard and to promote diplomacy over conflict. So what was the, what was behind your decision to step down as the president of NIAC specifically at this time? 
Well, actually, I was um, toying with the idea to step down right after the nuclear deal. I thought that would be a good move to do. And, you know, at, at the time, been president for 15 years, which is already quite a long time. And uh, going out on a high after having secured a nuclear deal, I thought would be good. But I frankly kind of chickened out, uh, partly because I was a little bit worried about the deal uh, not being able to survive unless uh, uh, there was more efforts to protect it. But I didn't do it. In retrospect, I kind of regret not doing it. It would have been a better time. But uh, the reason why I did it this time around is because, you know, I've been president for 17 years. That's a very long time. There was a need for fresh blood at the top. Uh, and there was a need for me also to be able to move on to other things. And what we did instead, you know, trying to find the perfect timing was more or less impossible. So instead, we decided to do a long transition. So we announced the transition in May. Uh, we had already decided it, I think, uh, in March of that year. We uh, announced it in May. And then we um, ended up uh, having the halfway transition at the end of July, in which I formally stepped down, but I'm still with the organization, helping with the transition. And I will be so till the end of the year. So we had a transition period of roughly nine or so months. And we thought that that would be the best way of doing it instead of constantly trying to find the, the perfect moment to do something like this. I see. So what does the future hold for you? So I'm working on a couple of projects right now um, on the side because I'm still with the organization full time. Uh, it will still be in uh, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it will be a bit broader than what you have seen from me in the past in the sense that it will not be focused so much on Iran as it will be focused on the region as a whole. Uh, and I will be able to tell you much, much more about it probably in a couple of months. Okay. I look forward to hearing about it. Uh, I know you're still a very busy man, so I appreciate the time that you provided for me. And uh, I wish you the best of luck in the new endeavors. Thank you so much, Sawan. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be interesting and productive. Again, if you did, I would really appreciate it if you shared it on social media or told your friends and family about it. Uh, stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up, and thanks and take care.